0: Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical-stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Martin Bork Jensen, co-founder and chief science officer of Gordian Biotechnology. Gordian has created the first in vivo therapeutic screening platform aimed at drug development for complex diseases of aging. Martin is also involved in an impressively large number of other projects in the longevity biotechnology space, including an apprenticeship program and a newly announced grant program to catalyze rapid progress in aging research, both of which we'll discuss in this interview. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Chris. I'm excited that you guys are doing this. And I'm trying to reduce my number of
1: projects.
0: (laughs) I think the listeners at the end of this interview are going to conclude that you're not doing a very good job of reducing that. (laughs) I just want to jump right into the technical details of your company, which I find really fascinating. So Gordian is taking a really unique approach to discovery of aging biology. In vivo pooled screening in animals. Can you tell us about how the platform works?
1: Yeah, I would say it's unique and it's also totally not unique. Like everyone knows that in order to get useful information about what's actually going to happen inside of an organism, you have to run a test inside of an organism. So everyone's running in vivo, we're just kind of 100xing it. So what we do is, we create a bunch of drugs in the form of gene therapies. So we have viral particles that each contain a potential therapeutic targeting some gene that might be important for the disease. And all of these are delivered into the animal as a pool at a very low dose. And so you end up with a tissue inside of an old animal that has spontaneously developed this disease. And so it's the most relevant possible model for the disease in humans. And inside of that tissue, each viral particle goes and ends up in a separate cell. And so you get this mosaic tissue where most of the tissue is unperturbed, has not received any of these interventions, but millions of cells within the tissue have received one of the many interventions we're testing. And so you kind of take the whole lab and move it into the live animal. And then we extract the cells that have received intervention after some period of equilibration, let's say a month. And we use single cell sequencing to measure the activity of every pathway and the overall state of that cell. And so along the many axes that uh, complex diseases of aging manifest themselves, we see whether our different candidate therapeutics had positive or therapeutic activity along each of these axes. And overall, we kind of get a phenotypic readout for, is this healthier? It's phenotypic, screening, but also because it's gene therapies we're putting in, we know the target immediately. So I kind of call it phenotarget screening,
0: combining the best of both discovery modalities that are used. I see. So what is the standard for healthy in this context? Is it doing the same approach in a young animal and just doing single cell sequencing on their organs?
1: So it all depends on what we're going after. At Gordian, we're focused on removing the diseases of aging. Right now we're doing that with three lead indications and that number will grow, which are NASH and osteoarthritis and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And so if we take the example of NASH, which is fatty liver, which many people have, you know, double digit percents, progress to the state of inflammation and fibrosis. So in that disease, healthy could be you don't have fatty liver and we can make those animals by not feeding, you know, like high calorie diets. But many people who have NAFLD, which is the fatty, but not NASHY form of the disease, they're all actually fine. And so the control could also be, oh, you have fatty liver, but it hasn't turned toxic. And so you don't have those toxic pathways active. So I I think it's, it's really just bespoke if you're looking at aging, it would, could be old versus young. If you're looking at diseases, you have to find what is the right control.
0: I see. So you suit the control and you suit the approach to the specific question that you're asking. All right. So to get into more specifics, how do you compile your libraries? It's not every gene in the genome. It's curated somehow. How do you go about doing that? It could be every gene
1: in the genome, but I think we can be smarter than that. We created a platform so that we didn't need
0: to be smart. We, <laughs> it's, always, it's always good to remove that requirement as much as possible, I find. Exactly,
1: right? Because, you know, how biology works. <laughs> We've created the platform in order to be able to do somewhat unbiased screens or entirely unbiased screens and just explore a lot more of the biology of these diseases than has ever been explored in vivo so far, because we have this higher throughput. But that said, We can run it in layers. So, you know, we can pick the first 500 things that seem most interesting to test and then test those. And then we can keep going rather than going straight for sort of 23,000 genes up and down regulated. So how do we create that prioritization? A really important component for us is the use of human data, which I know that BioAge also, like that's kind of the foundation of your company, right? It is. We are testing in animal models because we can't test in humans and because all of the in vitro systems, cell culture, organoids, all those things don't model aging and certainly don't model complex diseases of aging. But that said, even if we're testing in a primate and we can do that, we can go into and we are going into large animals it's not exactly human and so we're sourcing various human tissues that have disease or don't have disease and then we're running the same transcriptomic analyses on those tissues that we do in our screens you know then you get into the fancy uh, bioinformatics and data science to kind of deconstruct the network of disease in humans and create inputs for these libraries so that's one source but also again we have so much bandwidth with this that we can do things that let's say you're looking at a fibrotic disease tgf beta is purely like a relevant pathway and so tgf beta has been tested as a target for various fibrotic diseases in the past and mostly has not worked and there's various reasons including off-site side effects but we can just go into that pathway and just take like everything, everything that in any way interacts with TGF beta signaling and test all of those targets. So that's kind of a, a dumber approach that we can take. And this obviously can be combined with the human centric approach to just take whatever that GWAS hit is in the human. And instead of just assuming that like the SNP is actually corresponding to this gene, we can do every gene within a certain number of bases, or we could do like everything that interacts with a gene where that is. And so we kind of combine The Like this is relevant for human disease with the test, the most relevant test, which is, okay, once you put it into the full complexity of age-related disease, does this therapeutic do anything? Does it work? Which is, that's what you want to know, right?
0: Right. And so in a sense, one could say that other approaches start with in vitro models. And when they get promising leads, they figure out ways to test them in living animals. You essentially start with the second step, you start with a living animal, you make the animal your petri dish, for lack of a better word, and you do what other approaches would call multiple steps at the same time. And you do it all in the context of the complex living organism with all the systems interacting and sort of all the confounds in place. And it seems like that de-risks the approach to some extent, that you're more likely for your early hits to be productive down the road in preclinical testing.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So in a sense, we're doing exactly what you're saying. We're just starting at a later stage. But the reason this is meaningful is that to go from in vitro screen sort of tool compound to a compound that actually has appropriate adme. now if we're talking small molecules, right, in a living organism and show that there's target engagement, all of that takes a lot of time and a lot of money. Like it can be multiple years going from like, this is a potential you know you've done your your target screen and like this is a potential molecule and so it's not just that you kind of get to skip a step and that's nice and we'll move a little bit faster the logistics of the other method simply don't allow you to test a wide range of things in the in vivo context and so when you do the other approach you get some hits and then you try to put them in vivo and then if you get some signal in vivo you tend to move forward right like it's okay, is this compelling enough that we want to move towards clinical trials, IND, et cetera. The difference for us is that because we have the bandwidth at the in vivo stage, we can sort of map out the entire target landscape or like a a very large target landscape for this disease. And we can look at each individual target and ask, okay, if we want to move this thing forward, what does the... Next you know seven years of our company or whatever, what does our clinical path look like, and we can consider for that target does th- which modality makes the most sense? Should this be an antibody drug? should this be a small molecule drug? should this be a gene therapy? How is it the patient recruitment going to look, knowing that target and knowing the efficacy along multiple biological axes compared to all these other targets, so we don't end up in this position where we have a thing, and we 're kind of like. Is this good enough i don 't know it 's like kind of good enough. I think it 's good enough let 's go right? And then you get into the clinic, and then for many of these diseases, like Nash, it 's just you know failure after failure after failure. And when we look at those targets that have gone into phase two and phase three clinical trials with our platform, we did this cool experiment where we took all the clinical targets for NASH and then we put those into a screen along with a bunch of other things. And then we read out sort of what happened and then we compared it to what actually happened in the clinical trials. So now we're still comparing animals to clinical trials. And for that reason, I didn't expect our correlation to be like 85% of what we predicted was actually what happened in the trials, Oh wow! Uh, but, <laughs> but it was. So, so that's kind of amazing. I think, you know, if that we repeated it twice more in different animal models and so forth. So it's, it's not a fluke. If we have Better predictive power in that sense. I think it is because we used an animal model that takes eight months to generate through just feeding a high-fat diet to these animals and developing NASH in a realistic way. So before I get get sidetracked, let me go back to... (laughs) So we got these results, right? And it looked really cool. But everything that was in clinical trials that had been in clinical trials, yeah, those were sort of positive hits in the screen. On average, they looked like they had a therapeutic effect. But none of them were like... You know, a home run. None of them were like, okay, everything about this looks like it's just the perfect drug. They always had, you know, effects on let's say the metabolism and maybe on the inflammation, but not so much on the fibrosis, which we can separate out. And so, what Gordian can do is we can just screen in vivo and get the in vivo validation answers for many targets, and then not go into the really expensive
0: parts of drug development,
1: which you guys know well at BioAge, until we have something that looks
0: super awesome. I want to go back and highlight something that you mentioned earlier. The platform works by delivering hundreds of gene therapies at once to a single animal, but the drugs that you ultimately develop won't necessarily themselves be gene therapies, correct? That's correct. So they might be small molecule drugs, they might be antibodies, they'll be whatever you think is most appropriate to pursue the indication?
1: Yeah, once we know the target, right? There's a lot of good things about gene therapy. I'm excited about gene therapy. I'm very excited about gene therapy in the long run to treat aging, disease of aging and and just the physiological processes of aging because it turns out that what a cell needs depends on what a cell is. And so you probably don't want the same treatment in every type of cell in your body. Just one example, I guess TGF-beta, let's go back to TGF-beta, right? Um, tgf beta will trigger more collagen um, release and secretion. And so if you're doing that in your heart and if you're doing that in your lungs, then you have fibrosis. And so, oh, let's reduce that, right, with age. But in your cartilage, if you lose that, now you get osteoarthritis. So you need a, a targeted way to go in and give each type of cell in each tissue what it needs if we're going to sort of really exercise control over the aging process. So that's kind of the vision for why gene therapy is important for aging, that you're not going to, we're not going to end up with some like cocktail of 15 different small molecule drugs that does everything, but they all go everywhere and it's going to be a mess, right? But in a shorter term, gene therapy has the advantage that you can hit most of the genome, whereas small molecules, you can hit maybe 10% of the genome, unless you want to do something heroic, you know, like, go find the KRAS inhibitor and these kinds of things, but we'd rather not. We'd rather innovate on as few angles as possible. So gene therapy has that advantage, but the cost of goods for the actual therapy is very high. It's definitely maturing and the FDA is kind of very on board with gene therapies at this point, but still, you know, more new. And so small molecules have definitely a cost advantage and biologic drugs have other advantages. So It just depends on what makes the most sense for where your clinical program is going to be, you know, like when are you starting? Where is the field going to be? Is teen therapy manufacturing going to come down enough in cost that it makes sense to like go for that thing? And so we can evaluate that once we know what the target is and how you you could hit it.
0: All right. So one thing that you can do in vitro that you can't do in vivo is test the effect of the sequences in your library on human beings. I mean, maybe you could do it in humans, but you shouldn't. It seems important to get this kind of validation, especially because so many drug candidates with promising preclinical data in mice don't end up succeeding in clinical trials. So could you say a bit more about how Gordian is overcoming the challenges that are inherent to animal models?
1: I'll give two answers. One of them, I think, is a little bit heretical, a little bit iconoclastic, And the other one is uh, perhaps more palatable to most people in the field. So let's go with a palatable one, which is, you know, when we get a, a hit in our screen, we think that this target has a biological potential in the disease context that we screened in, right? But we're st- for sure still going to go and give that drug or that target to animals without all the other targets or kind of give a high dose and saturate the organ physiologically. And we're going to do you know, all the other validation stuff that people do. So nothing prevents us from going into organoids, organ on the chip, human lung slices, all those kinds of things uh, to validate that you actually have target engagement in humans, so on and so forth. So yeah, we're not saying like, oh, we just run, you know, a Gordian screen and then done, like start the trial. So, so that is for sure one angle in addition to the start with something that you already are convinced has have human relevance.
0: The other thing, which I think is less commonly paid attention to. This is the heretical one? Yeah. Okay, we're all for (laughs) heresy here at Translating Agent. Lay it out.
1: We'll see how heretical it is. I think to me, it makes a lot of sense. But many people will say, yeah, animal models suck you know, mice don't translate anything. There's the Twitter account just says in mice, right? And then when some journalist reports that, you know, cancer has been cured or whatever else, it's like in <laughs> mice, right? Yes, except, right? Like that's, I'm not arguing that like, oh no, actually all those studies did translate to humans, but which mice and, you know, what was the disease model? And what were the conclusions based on that disease model? and are those appropriate. So most age-related diseases are not studied in old mice. Again, you guys know well how expensive old mice are, right? It's like 10, 15x the cost of a young mouse for like a black six. True. Yeah, if you're running like a multi-thousand mouse vivarium because you're a small to mid-sized biotech, then that's a big expense. And like, you know, are you really going to do that? Turns out most people say, no, (laughs) we're not going to use old mice when we're studying cancer, even though the risk for cancer goes up exponentially with age in humans. We're not even going to, use old mice most of the time when we study like Alzheimer's disease, even though it's just like never manifests in young humans. So I think part of what inspired Gordian originally was, hey, we should really look at all this stuff in the context of aging, because aging is the number one risk factor for all these diseases. So I guess there's some part of the aging biology that intersects with the disease biology. That seems uncontroversial. (laughs) But the controversial part then is to suggest that there might actually be good animal models and we really haven't been using them most of the time, you know, like hardly at all. So we put some effort into thinking about like what animal really represents the human disease in question. And that involves both for the organ that we're looking at, is the anatomy comparable? Let's take the lung, mouse lungs are much less complex and like structurally they're just smaller than human lungs. And the lung is a really structured organ, obviously, and like mechanically active. So there are some constraints there. And then you can go into the biology and say, okay, are the cell types doing the same thing? Are the different signaling pathways the same? And so on and so forth. So you can start with what species should we actually use in order to recapitulate this? If we're going to do hard stuff, we should probably use, let's say, a pig rather than a mouse. And then you can go further and say, okay, how are we actually going to model this disease? So for NASH, which we work on, it's fading out, but still in use, like a common model for inducing fibrosis in NASH. And so NASH happens, you get fatty liver, and then there's sort of a toxic Consequence of the fat, you get hepatocyte cell death, which causes inflammation, and then you get activation of the fibroblasts, you get fibrosis. So, a common model, although becoming less common, was inject a toxin like carbon tetrachloride into the liver, blow up half the hepatocytes, and then you will also get fibrosis, right? Yeah, sure, but like that doesn't mean that a drug that fixes that is necessarily going to work. So, maybe instead you should induce. NASH in the way that humans get NASH, which is that you give the animals a high fat, high sugar. The technical name is a Western diet (laughs) for an extended period of time, right? So we give these animals for like nine months, this diet, and then you have something that looks like human NASH or even 12 months. That takes a long time, but you have an etiology that actually resembles a human or even better. First of all, like, does it have to be mice? Maybe we want to be in primates or some other organism where the liver biology is more reflective? And do we want to induce the disease at all? Or do we just want to go after this disease has naturally occurred with age? And so, for example, I think I mentioned this before with osteoarthritis, the standard mouse model is, you know, if you look at the aging companies that have done work on osteoarthritis, you take young mice, you cut one of the tendons in their joint, and then the joint gets destabilized, and then they develop osteoarthritis, cartilage damage, et cetera. It's kind of like a football player, maybe, osteoarthritis. It's not really AIDS-related osteoarthritis. And then you go into clinical trials, you know, and you go into old people, and you know, maybe it doesn't work anymore. So what we're doing at Gordian for osteoarthritis is we're using horses rather than mice because the load-bearing structure of the joint is much more similar to humans and the cartilage thickness. And we're sourcing horses that have been either racing or have been farm animals. They've aged and they've run around and now they have osteoarthritis that they've developed in the same way that humans develop osteoarthritis. And so we just think that that's going to be way more predictive. The, our horse work is still not at the sort of like asset stage, but we certainly think that you know this model is going to be more predictive because it encapsulates I guess literally in the <laughs> <laughs> joint capsule, but it encapsulates all the things that contribute to osteoarthritis in humans. The sort of like gradual damage, the age-related changes to metabolism and information and so forth that are part of the disease. And so, yeah, our favorite animal model is, and this is the theoretical part, right? Like maybe animal models aren't so bad for many diseases. If you find an animal that has spontaneously developed Progressively, a disease in the same way that humans develop this disease and has biology that resembles human uh, biology
0: and the relevant organ. If it's heretical, I don't want to be orthodox. It's certainly not unreasonable. <laughs> One thing that occurs to me, Martin, though, and I'm sure you've thought of this if you're going to use horses, you're going to need a really big vivarium.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so our vivarium is uh, the state of Florida. Our horse work is done in collaboration with the University of Florida our collaborator down there, uh, Rachel Levins is great. And they have, you know, it's a veterinary school. So the facilities
0: there are kind of wild to see. So we've talked about some of the models that you're using and some of the human diseases that you're modeling and how you're doing that. They all have in common that they're diseases of aging that are more likely to occur in people of advanced chronological age. But aging per se is not a clinical indication. So I want to talk now about the future plans. How does Gordian plan to bring drugs to market? What's the strategy?
1: So the midterm strategy is exactly as you say, and exactly as BioRage is doing, to go after specific indications, age-related indications. And we are a drug development company. We've developed this uh, in vivo full screening platform in order to use it ourselves and discover the best drugs for each of the indications that we go into. In fact, our sort of next year Company goals are like, we must have the best candidate therapeutic in each of these diseases that has ever been had by anyone. So our plan is to move through the clinic. Now, the platform we have allows us to find a whole bunch of assets and you know, running four phase threes is not probably something that our investors <laughs> would be super excited about cashing out for just now. So we are in conversations with a whole bunch of pharma companies about partnering at the clinical stage around the assets that we are discovering with our platform. And so I basically, a lot of things about Gordian, I, this is sounds a bit pretentious, but I model on Genentech. I think if you look at the path of what Genentech did, they had a platform. They were like the original biotech platform company. They could clone, so they could make any protein. And then they had partnerships with Lilly and so forth, where their early drugs were developed in partnership where Genentech owned part of that and the larger pharma company contributed expertise for you know running the clinical trial, manufacturing well I guess not manufacturing in this case, but distribution, marketing, all of those things that pharma are good at and that a small biotech is not necessarily good at and then over time Genentech's ownership in the drugs they developed grew. And so eventually they were an independent biotech company that had a profitable pipeline of their own drugs. So that's kind of how we are thinking about moving through the clinic, that the first things we develop will likely be partnered at some clinical stage, maybe phase one, maybe phase two,
0: and then it's going to be later and later. It's so important to remember that even the giants of our industry were small, scrappy startups at one point which means that there's no reason for a relatively small, relatively young company to start thinking about who they want to be when they grow up. And I really like that aspect of your answer. So while we're on the subject of Gordian and before we transition to talking about some of your other projects, I want to ask a bit more personal question. One of the themes we come back to again and again on this show is the transition of scientific founders from academic to entrepreneur. And I find that everyone has a different, unique story. In your case, you had an NIH K-99 Path to Independence Award, and you were working at the Buck Institute for Aging Research. What inspired you to basically give back that money and make the jump into biotech?
1: You know, as a teenager, I kind of came to the realization that I wanted to try to fix aging. And what aging is, it became clear, it's not very well defined, but the idea that everyone is going to get sick and be in pain and then die just seemed really bad. (laughs) So that was kind of a a very strong focus from an early age. Now, the problem was I didn't know what to do, right? So I went to university and I ended up doing my PhD at the National Institute on Aging in Baltimore. And when I first went there, I figured, well, they'll know, I was very naive, right? They'll know how aging works and, you know, I can ask them and then I'll do whatever is required in order to fix aging. Uh, That's not how it works. (laughs) The answer isn't out there in a textbook somewhere. So, I spent my academic career, which was at the NIH for three years, well, two years and one year at the University of Copenhagen. And then, after a brief pause where I went to the military and wrote a book on fasting, I went to the Buck Institute and I did one project there with my mentor, Henry Jasper. Henry moved to Tenentech actually, to run his lab from there. And I didn't move because I had this NIH grant that would have given me two years as a postdoc and then three years of funding my own lab. And so, to get back to what you're saying, like, why? And a lot of people were like, no, you're crazy. You got the K99, you're set up for academia, right? Like you should be, (laughs) you should just double down on that. Or even when I said, oh, but I have this, I want to do this company. Then they're like, oh, just do that, but stay in academia. You know, like don't just jump
0: ship, which personally I just don't believe in. Like if you, if I tried to do that, I wouldn't have done a good job. Right. It sounds like a way to do two things poorly rather than one thing well. Some people do it.
1: I didn't want it... I wanted to go all in, right? Like I wanted with Gordian not only to have the successful outcome of like treating age-related diseases, but I also wanted to feel for myself that I was doing absolutely everything that I could towards the goal that I had decided. So it's kind of a self-actualization thing, if you will. And so when you think about you're set up for academia. Well, I was only in academia to figure out what to do about aging. And by the time I had a pretty decent idea of what at least the sort of like immediate term bottlenecks were and and things that needed to be done in my postdoc, now I had a grant to study inflammatory cytokines from the gut contributing to neurodegeneration, but that wasn't the answer that I'd come up with, right? So I kind of spent my time in academia being productive, maybe, and publishing papers and so forth, but really learning what needed to get done. And then I had a grant to do something else. And I just looked forward 10 years you know, into my future and said, I mean, am I going to be happier if I do this thing that's all set up, but it isn't actually exactly what I want to run towards? And the answer was no. And so that's why, <laughs> that's why I ended up taking that path.
0: I think a lot of our listeners, Martin, have either been through a moment like the one that you just described or have one on the horizon. What advice would you give someone in that same situation that you were in?
1: This is tricky because I'm I'm, I'm being heretical again. Depends on where you are. Because San Francisco, where I am, Silicon Valley, you know, sometimes I almost feel like there's too much messaging of like, oh, you should be a founder. You should start a company. If you haven't started a company, you're somehow like not a complete person. (laughs) You know, that's like, that's all wrong, right? Like you should only start a company if there's something that only a company can do that you desperately need done. And like, this is the thing that you care about because it's going to be, you know, like really hard. There's going to be doubts and challenges and, you know, staring into the abyss and all these things. And so if you're doing it for, reasons that won't compel you to push through all of that, like it's probably not going to work out anyway. That's my personal take. Now that said, you know, you can't do it. That's the other message is I was seeing, you know, honestly, I'm good friends with Kristen, right? And the fact that Kristen had started a company was part of what made me think that that was even a possibility. If I had ended up in my postdoc in Germany, which was one of the aging centers that I looked at, I might not have started a company because I wouldn't have seen the possibility. And there are also, you know, like good friends who are VCs who really sort of like gave me encouragement. Maybe not everyone has that same degree of encouragement and sort of like blank check offers, but not blank check offers, but like no idea check offers. (laughs) But if you really, really want to do it and you're thoughtful, then like you can do it. My advice is, Figure out whether this is really what you want to do and whether you're considering it for the right reasons or whether you've been sort of like lured by some sort of status thing
0: or, you know, you just want to be your own boss and you don't like answering to people and all these kinds of bad reasons. I think that is such a thoughtful answer. I also think that, by the way, just to catch up any of our listeners who don't know, the Kristen that Martin was referring to is uh, Kristen Fortney, Dr. Kristen Fortney, who is the co-founder and CEO of BioAge, which produces this podcast. And I'm sure she would be very honored to hear that you found inspiration in her story. And just once again, thank you for sharing that personal and really thoughtful answer. I want to change gears a bit now. One of the reasons that we really wanted to talk to you in particular is that in addition to your fascinating work at Gordian... You're also involved in multiple efforts to promote longevity science and even to bring people into the field who aren't already in that field. It's so much so that I would say that you have taken on a mission of service to our field. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I would have to say yes. I mean, at BioAge, we're very excited about the work we're doing to develop drugs to treat disease by targeting mechanisms of aging, but we're also committed to highlighting the work of others. And this podcast is an example of how we're trying to do that. And so I think you and I, you and we, share a common sentiment about the value of promoting the field. And uh, on a personal note, I just want to say that I really admire the energy you put into this effort so far. Thanks. <laughs> Literally, the list is so long that it's hard to tell where to start. But uh, what, where should we start? The Longevity Apprenticeship? that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay. So this is a program that aims at giving young researchers practical experience in planning and executing projects that address some kind of deficit within the field. And the idea is that these apprentices work directly with you on real projects of immediate value. So what need did you perceive in the field that made you say, we need a program like this?
1: It came out of, you know, is this a like perfect program moment or whatever? Like I had a problem. (laughs) And the problem was that I would sometimes have conversations with people who had resources, you know, money or otherwise, to potentially get something done. And the conversation would usually about what needs to be done. And after this 10 years in academic sort of like really forming ideas about the field and like what are the bottlenecks and all these kinds of things, I would have ideas. And then sometimes those ideas were well-liked. And then it kind of got to the point of like, okay, this sounds great. Let's do this. You know, like here's the appropriate amount of money, resources, you know, tens of millions of dollars, whatever it is. And then it gets blocked at, okay, who's going to do it? And I'm not going to quit, Gordian. Like that's my... (laughs) That is definitely my like primary focus by a massive long shot. And so you ended up with this, like, who's going to do this? And the reason that it wasn't easy to answer is that I think two different sort of skill sets are required here. One of them is to have what I call good taste in aging research. And so this you develop as a PhD, as an example, You know, if you're paying attention, you kind of know what makes sense and what's more hype and overstated claims and, you know, like where things might go and you kind of can judge the biology and the science. And then the other thing you want is, yeah, how do you run a $10 million, uh, 15 person project? Yeah. How do you get all those you know ducks in a row. And so that you might have if you've if you started a company, certainly, but also if you've run some initiative within a larger company or within a government or whatever. And so I saw people who had one, and I saw people who had the other, and I saw some people who had both, but it was rare. And it was basically the scarce resource for these projects, at least in the last few years where the aging field has really sort of blossomed and there are people who want to support good projects and so it was really just <laughs> this is needed because there are more things that should happen and apparently could happen than i could possibly ever go and do myself by you know orders of magnitude and so let's train more people to have this overlapping skill set and then the only way that i knew how to train that was kind of just direct mentoring I believe I have that skill set. I'm not too uh, humble to say that or those two skill sets. And I believe that I could train them. And so get people in who will work on direct projects, right? So it's not like me spending part of my time just teaching people and then hopefully in some sort of diffuse sense, the field will be better off in the future. Rather, it's like, let's go do this thing together. And the apprentices end up doing most of the legwork by far. And I'm kind of steering it. It's almost more as if if I'd stayed in, in academia and been a professor. I'm helping them with their career trajectory and with the stuff they're doing and where they should look for answers and like what their overall
0: strategy should be to accomplish these projects that we do together. Fantastic. So how many apprentices have been involved in? What sort of projects have they been involved in?
1: So it's three people, uh, it just started in May. I kind of had the idea and then talked to a couple of people and, and got some donations from uh, especially the Estera organization um, and also from Michael Antonov to support these apprentices. So they're actually being paid to do this, not in a way that allows them to build up savings in San Francisco, but you know, enough <laughs> to live. And so I wanted to start with a small cohort of three people. So right now there's three, Lada Nushna and Kusham Sharma and Edmar Ferreira. And uh, they were selected from a group. I got about 70 applications when I kind of tweeted about it and opened for applications. I wanted to do a smaller group to make sure that it was done well. And then it could be scaled up later through also sort of the apprentices teaching other people. And so they started a few months ago. And uh, I had kind of one biomarker-related project in mind for them. But then there was an opportunity to do another project, which is these longevity impetus grants,
0: which is what they've been doing. And that's something that we
1: just launched,
0: as you mentioned in the intro. We're gonna jump to that next, but before we leave this topic, is the program ongoing? Uh, Will it be scaled up? And can interested people still apply?
1: It is still going. So we're we're gonna do the impetus grants and then we are gonna work on biomarkers. It's three people. I am strongly considering expanding by like one or two in the near future, let's say the next couple of months. I probably would have opened for applications already, Except that now I'm going to get a whole bunch of grant applications, right. um, as we'll talk about. So so it's kind of solved for that reason. But if you go to um, martinborkjensen.com
0: slash apprenticeship, and I'm sure you can put that link in there whenever you post it. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. Along with your Twitter, Great. which everyone should follow because Martin is <laughs> online and he will announce uh, important things like reopening the application process on his Twitter as well. Twitter
1: is good. And for the apprenticeship in particular, there's a mailing list that you can sign up for and you'll get notified if we're open for applications, but also we'll announce the projects that we kind of complete. So if you're just kind of curious about how the program is going, um, you can sign up as well. And then, yeah, my, my goal is, I mean, this is the real test of success for this apprenticeship. If the people in it end up running important projects within the longevity field overall, then it's a success, right? So if And I don't, you know, like particularly care what they are, as long as they're good projects. It could be stuff like the grants, it could be starting a company, it could be going and convincing Congress that we need to, you know, get more money in aging research, whatever it is. If they can take ownership in the same way that I do with Gordian, feel that they're running as fast as they can directly
0: towards the goal that they want. Yeah, that's what I want. I think that sounds like a very worthy goal. So to extend something that you just brought up, let's dive into the impetus grants. The first project that the apprentices worked on was the Impetus grant program, which was just announced this morning. That is to say, the morning that we're recording this interview. By the time the podcast is published, it'll be about a week ago. And Impetus is a $21 million plus program. And counting. That's aimed at funding basic, pardon? And counting. We're still fundraising. 21 million and counting, aimed at funding basic research that can accelerate our understanding and control of human aging. So, Can you tell us a bit more about the mission of the Impetus Grants Program?
1: Like the vast majority of progress in the aging field has happened from academic researchers who are studying the various biological processes of aging. I was one at one point, uh, Kristen was one, and so forth. Given the importance of aging biology for the various diseases, like I won't get into sort of what the NIA budget, National Institute of Aging budget should be relative to the whatever, all the other disease budgets, but... Suffice it to say that there's a lot of basic research that could happen, and so at the very lowest level, like more money into academic research that isn't trying to like you know spin out a drug or whatever translate something, but like the wellspring of our understanding of aging would be great so that's one thing, but then there are at least two things that we wanted to kind of experiment with compared to the way that research funding is normally acquired, which is, for the most part, applications in the U.S. to the National Institutes of Health. And you write a big grant proposal, the, the K99 that I got was about a million dollars over five years. The... Oh, no, that's not true. It's like 850. Anyway, the application, the total application was like 100 pages. I submitted it in February, and I think I got a score like in the fall. And then I got an announcement that I'd actually gotten it maybe like in the winter or something like that. It's a pretty big process bureaucratically. And so what ends up happening is that a lot of scientists spend a lot of time writing grant proposals, basically, right? Like 25% or more of their time, if you're a professor, is spent applying for money. And what happened was I saw this project called the COVID-19 Fast Grants that was primarily organized by Patrick Collison from Stripe and Tyler Cowan from the Makeda Center at George Mason University for COVID. They basically looked at the whole NIH process and said, too slow. Like This is definitely not going to get COVID eliminated as soon as possible. So they raised money and decided to do a much faster review process. They made decisions within two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, about whether something was funded. And their application was much faster as well. You could apply in a day. (laughs) So that was like, oh, that's totally crazy and different and so forth, right? And then I saw Patrick presenting the results of it. And, you know, they had some, they were mostly funding projects that were already ongoing. So it was like a little bit hedged in their favor, maybe, but. Also, not really, because that's what the NIH does. If you look at the output of it, like the number of papers that received support from this and reported cool things, including tools that we use for mass testing now, it was like really high. To me, it was not at all clear that the process went in a worse way than the normal application process. So then it was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. You know, big kudos to them for having the guts to make that first experiment. And that then served as an impetus for the impetus grants uh, to say, Well, if we can do it that way, we should. And so that's one way that the impetus grants are different than most other things that happen is that we're making decisions in three weeks rather than two, and the application is really short. And even, you know, I've done these things, I've reviewed grants and so forth myself as an academic, There are just small things that are annoying. Like you got to like read through all this stuff. And then there's a lot of fields that are duplicate and redundant information and things that like you kind of have to write in the grant, but like everyone writes the same thing. So it's kind of not useful. So get rid of as much as possible of that. Get a nice UI on your reviewer dashboard. Just make it very easy to like read things and then form informed opinions as a reviewer and then make a decision. So that's one thing that we're doing. The other thing that we're doing is like, what are we trying to fund? And basically, it's what you were saying, mission service to the field, right? Like what is going to have the biggest impact on the field of longevity or aging biology overall? And there are a number of things that aren't really super exciting that would be very impactful for the field. For example, cheaper or more readily available old animals, right? Like we just talked about the bottleneck of like, there just aren't enough old mice that if everyone wanted to study age-related disease in old animals, <laughs> that they could even buy those mice from jacks. And so that's kind of a, you know, boring sort of concrete infrastructure style project, but it's really important. Also validation work, right? Like when there's some cool new study on whatever, let's take David Sinclair's uh, epigenetic reprogramming of nerve cells in the eye or something. Like how often does that work? You know, does it work in genetically diverse outbred organisms, that kind of work is super important for the field to move forward by having a strong foundation, but not necessarily interesting to fund. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I have a couple of examples uh, on the website of things that just didn't get any NIH funding. One example is these DNA methylation aging clocks. Steve Horvath is the most well-known in that area, but there are many other great contributors. We have to mention Morgan Levine, obviously. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was about to say, right, who were in, uh, in Steve's lab. So there, there are a bunch of people, but I mentioned it because some people know it as like the Horvath clocks. But yeah, these DNA methylation clocks that are, I would say, the most promising biomarker for aging itself currently. There are other modalities uh, of measurement that are also being used, but he just didn't get any funding for doing that work. And so he just did it for, unfortunately for him, it was data work that he could do just by himself. Right. But like we shouldn't miss that, and I'm not pretending like we're going to miss a bunch of stuff with the impetus grants, and we're going to fund a bunch of stuff that ends up like not working out. What we tried to do, and we've picked the review panel appropriately, is say, is there a possibility that this could work? You know, like if it's total lunacy, sure, like don't waste any money. But if it's just like this doesn't fit with the current consensus of the field, but Maybe it could work. Or like there might be nothing to see here, but maybe there would be. Like, let's look at, you know, splicing variants or the extracellular matrix and aging. And if there is something there, if the project does work out, that would actually be a really big push forward for the field. Then we should try to fund those things. And many of them won't work out. And that's okay. We can learn from that. And so we've picked reviewers who are, you know, knowledgeable and unbiased and want progress for the field. And that's a... You know, that's like the big burden. And so the reviewers are gonna be reading a lot of grants. And then there's some other mechanisms that we're doing to support that idea that we should take big bets on things that could move the field forward. For example, one of the reasons you don't want to do a risky project, let's say, is that as an academic, you have to publish papers. That's kind of like your livelihood. And so if something doesn't work, or if you go and you try to replicate something and it doesn't really replicate or you know, any kind of null or contradictory result, it's not going to be easy to publish it. And you can power it through, but, you know, it won't be as easy. And so what we're doing with these grants is we're actually doing a special journal issue sometime probably like a year from now, where if you got these grants, and you did the important experiment to like go test this thing, that's an outstanding question for the field. And your discovery was like, no, there's nothing there. It's not that interested. As long as you did like a very robust study to show that, oh no, there actually is nothing there. We want to publish that. We want
0: that to be accessible to the whole field. So we're going to have a special journal issue with short reports on that. I think that's so important. I wrote a review years ago about what I called dark data, which is just the huge amount of scientific effort that never sees the light of day because it's a negative result or it's somehow not significant enough. And when you think about all the person years, that are devoted to experiments that we didn't know the answer to that turned out to be not interesting by the standards of the journals, so much human effort is lost. So I I think that's an amazing idea to guarantee people who get money from the impetus grants that they will have a form to publish their findings regardless of what those findings are, as long as they do the study well. And essentially, you're de-risking the time commitment for them, which is really smart. Who can apply for these grants? And When do the applications open? So we just announced there's a website, if and the applications
1: will open on Monday. So we're giving people time to just read the description and so forth. That's Monday, September 13th. Oh yeah, that's right. So that'll actually, they'll be open by the time this goes live, I think. Mm -hmm. And any nonprofit can apply from anywhere in the world, any or any researcher at a nonprofit. So you cannot apply if you're a company because we are a public charity and we can't just give grants to for-profits. And... That's basically it. (laughs) And then there's an application form on the website. As I mentioned, it's it's pretty short. I don't uh, want to invite people to just do a bunch of throwaway applications for that reason. Short is not always easier, but people who write grants know this already. You have to get your whole idea in there. And what you really have to sort of explain to us is how is what you're doing going to move the field forward if it works and... Why is the way that you're doing it a good, robust, sort of like well-thought-out experimental plan for doing
0: it? Those are the main things that we look for. Fantastic. Well, good luck to the grantees and good luck to you in selecting the first class of grantees. Thanks. We're getting toward the conclusion of the interview now. We've talked about your work at Gordian. We've talked about the longevity apprenticeship. We've talked about the impetus grants. Oh, and and one thing I meant to talk about earlier is that in Martin's copious spare time, he also recorded a fairly comprehensive seminar about the science of aging, which you can see on YouTube and we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, Clearly, you've been very busy, Martin. So what's next? Oh, fewer projects. (laughs) Give away... You know, $21 million and
1: counting and so forth. So, so we're fundraising for the grants still right now, like as we're launching. I would love to double the amount of money that we can put into the field. We've had some really generous donors so far, including Juan Benet and James Fickle and Jeff McCaleb and some anonymous donors. And we're still enrolling people. So, you know, do that, give all the money away, And then uh, shut that down, get it out of my brain. (laughs) Or if if it's not shut down, then somebody else takes over. So the main thing that's next for me, of course, is Gordian's scaling to the next level. We are going to be fundraising probably this fall now-ish to take this platform that we've built and... Start applying it, start doing these really big screens in the best possible model organisms and discover the drugs that are going to eliminate diseases of aging. That's going to be my big focus. That said, we really need human biomarkers for aging so we can run these aging trials in a faster way. And I think we really need those biomarkers to recognize that aging is not one uniform thing across the body, or at least that's my personal opinion. So we need these mechanistic biomarkers for aging. And that's the thing that we need. So I hope that somebody else goes and just solves everything in that area before <laughs> January. But, but if that doesn't happen, then you know the apprentices will start working on preparing a path or kind of like clarifying a path towards uh, human biomarkers for aging. And there I want to emphasize that I'm not like pretending that nobody else is working on biomarkers uh, for aging, <laughs> especially on a, on a BioAge podcast. but I do think that that's, if we're just looking at the field and like what are the biggest bottlenecks, like the biomarkers one is just very, very clear. And so you guys are prescient. Like we can't have the experiment for whether an aging drug, and now we're talking like an aging, preventative medicine, multimorbidity treatment disease drug works, take the lifetime of a human being. And so things like the TAME trial and so forth that are already ongoing to find biomarkers of
0: aging are, are super important. And so, that's where the apprentices will go next. Focus on Gordian. All right. If the world doesn't change fast enough, you're going to create the change you want to see in the world. That seems to be a theme uh, running throughout this interview. So no problem. <laughs> to close, I just wanted to ask you a couple of thematic questions that we like to ask all of our guests. You may have already answered one of them. I'll ask you anyway. What's the most interesting topic in longevity science that you're not working on? You know, there are different mechanisms of aging, however you want to classify them, hallmarks or whatever. But like, there are different things happening. There's like mitochondrial
1: stuff happening, there's DNA stuff happening, senescent cells happening, inflammation, and so forth. And we pretty much know that they are connected to each other and that they sort of can drive each other from various sort of specific studies looking at the relationship between any given two. But I think the overall relationship between these things, sort of the systems biology of aging mechanisms, is not well understood at all and the reason is that we can't measure many things simultaneously we can sort of you know move in that direction with things like you know whole transcriptomics but better tools to understand the causal and temporal relationships between the different processes of aging i think is definitely sort of like under understudied and tremendously important. And to me, very interesting because like, how does it all work? We've built Gordian so that we can like fix
0: it without understanding how it all works, but I'm still curious. How does it all work? Sure. I mean, that's, well, the $20 billion question is we know that aging, or we believe almost as an article of faith, that there's a a small number of processes driving a large number of changes in the body. And that we can study this by looking at A smaller number of things, you know, we can study aging rather than every segmental disease. These things do seem to be related, but what's the nature of that relationship? Mm -hmm. That's a fascinating question. The next question is, where do you see the field in five to 10 years? Five
1: to 10 years. I think we will have run studies for sort of like biomarkers of human aging. So I think that in five to 10 years, you know, hopefully more like five, we will have ways of measuring in humans, uh, something that we choose to call aging. And I think this is actually, like this is a huge thing. The FDA, I think, is not against like a trial for aging. I, I, maybe I'm imagining this, but I think near Arsalae would back me up, right? Like they're not against that at all, but probably when we show up and say we want to treat aging with this drug, they're like, okay, what do you mean by aging? And how are you going to measure it? <laughs> so if, you, if, and we don't have great answers for this, right? Like we don't actually have a great Definition of aging in a sense that it can be measured and quantified and so forth. So, I think that's really important, as we talked about. And I think we will be quite far uh, with that in five to 10 years, given the initiatives that are happening now from TAME and BioAge and evolution and all these things
0: that are about to, I guess, appear. And possibly from impetus grants.
1: Yes, hopefully. <laughs> that is one of our focus areas. <laughs> so, that's on the sort of measure aging side. And I think that is the biggest bottleneck, honestly. Also, there are, you know, like over a hundred different sort of aging mechanism-based startups in the world now, plus, you know, big things like Altos and, and Calico. So we've already had some clinical trials for like something that you could call, oh, this is an aging drug. Again, I don't know what exactly that means, but somehow if it's like killing some SM cells, then it counts. And so, so far, we haven't had any of those work out. I would expect us to have had at least a clinical success with something like that over the next five to 10 years. And then the interesting next step is the premise of using an aging mechanism to treat a disease is that it will work in more than one disease. So watching the the sort of companies get to a clinical success and then just like cluster bomb out there to start treating different indications with the same drug. It'll be interesting to see how that pans out and how well that works if the drug is a small molecule versus if it's a biologic and like which classes of aging
0: are going to be most amenable to this uh, approach. I completely agree. I mean, while we're unlikely to use the term cluster bomb in our trial protocols, (laughs) uh, those of us over here at BioAge could not agree with you more, especially on the second part of your answer. And uh, I really appreciate your thoughts on that. That brings us to the end of the interview. Martin, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thanks, Chris. This has been great. many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioage podcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor bioage labs on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.